0: Thank you, everybody. If you can make your way back to your seats, we're going to get started in just a moment. We're really uh, looking forward to this morning. Uh, we have a special treat here. Our guest speaker, Tim Shuri, who is our Northeast Regional Leader on behalf of Sovereign Grace Churches, uh, the family of churches that we're a part of, is here to preach God's Word to us. And um, man, it's so good to see you, church. I was just watching you out there fellowshipping and Love your joy, love your excitement to see one another, and we got a lot to be excited about, don't we? With Christ dying on the cross for all of our sins and rising from the dead for us, we really truly are blessed, and uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing the word this morning from my friend Tim. Uh, Tim and Gaylene are have been friends of our church for many years now. In fact, I was thinking last night, I was talking with my wife Shannon about this. And I think I shared this with you, Tim and Gaileen, before, but I believe I remember Tim and Gaylene and their family visiting Community Life Church in Cherry Hill, where I was first pastoring many years ago. I remember me and Shannon and Lisa Halp and Daphne and Tom and Jill England. We were all there, I believe, on the first Sunday, Tim and Gaylene, I think, visited a Sovereign Grace Church. And I remember you being over there, over to this side, with your family of six, about two, three rows back, and Warren introducing you guys. And they were not yet a part of our family of churches, but were looking to be adopted in. As Tim was the senior pastor of uh, the, a church in Toms River, New Jersey, that since was adopted into our family of churches, and it's been a real joy, just the friendship through the years that's developed between us and our families, and. Uh, ben and Kelly and John and Kim and Shannon and I had dinner last night with Tim and Gaileen and they just spent time caring for our souls, caring for our marriages, making sure that uh, we're all doing well in the Lord. And I, I'm just so grateful for that. I've been saying this a lot, church, over the last uh, last season especially. It, it's very good that we are a local church that is not just an independence, but that we have a true partnership in the gospel with an ecclesiastical union of churches, a family of churches that really have a unity based around the precious doctrine of Christ Jesus and him crucified and risen from the dead as its mainstay. I'm so thankful for the sound doctrine we get. I'm so thankful for the extra local care that we get from Sovereign Grace Churches, that Ben, John, and I as an eldership are not just kind of operating in an isolated context, but that we have care that's given into our church. We can get counsel from our uh, brothers and sisters that are even outside of our church. And I'm so thankful for the kind of care that we get from Tim and Gayleen and from others as well. It's a wonderful Sunday because Tim's going to be bringing a message this morning that he shared with us recently at our Regional Assembly of Elders. He shared it with us as pastors, and it's about how powerful ministry flows out from God's power through his weak people. Um, His power flows through weakness. And listen carefully today because I believe the Lord's going to really encourage all of our hearts with how the Lord is on the move, even in the midst of the details of our lives that are really painful and difficult and challenging. And so we're in for a real treat, and I'm so thankful Tim's here. So, Tim, if you could just come forward at this time. And, Church, can we thank God for Tim? Thanks for much, buddy. One uh, one other detail, uh, he did speak at the communication seminar yesterday, which was outstanding, and Ben informed me last night that those messages are online. Uh, Keith Valentine, thank you for uploading those messages. And so if you weren't able to attend the communication seminar, it's gold, brothers and sisters, and would love for you to check that out and uh, benefit from that teaching. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Oh, yeah, sure.
1: Well, hello, everyone. It is it is really good to be back with you. Galen, and I love to be here. We love to be with you. We love to worship with you. We love to learn with you and grow with you. Uh, we count it a privilege. I, I want to greet you from Sovereign Grace Churches uh, and just let you know that the elders and churches in the Northeast region and throughout the country and world uh, love the partnership that we share. Uh, in the gospel. I want to greet you from Covenant Fellowship Church, uh, where I've been one of the elders for the last couple of years, and the brothers there and the church there uh, loves you all. You're really grandchildren, right, of Covenant Fellowship? Yeah, Yeah, so this church is the grandchild of Covenant Fellowship uh, from years back. I greet you also from Risen Hope Church, which is a new campus that was sent out from Covenant Fellowship into Drexel Hill, uh, PA, just on the doorstep of Philadelphia in the Upper Darby Township, uh, where uh, this past September, uh, Covenant sent a group out and asked me to be the lead pastor of this new campus that, God willing, in a couple of years will be its own uh, self-sustaining local church, uh, so, I, I greet you from all over the place uh, this this morning and uh, just am grateful. I know uh, how much you all are on mission. I've been hearing about uh, Mario and Jen and the Croatia Initiative, and it just, I'm, I'm a missionary kid, grew up in Japan. My parents were there as missionaries and church planners for 20 years, and so. I, uh, I have long had a burden for the world, for the global initiative of, of the gospel, and to hear what you are doing here through Jen, uh, through Mario and Jen, and the, the way that you are getting behind this mission uh, is simply exciting. Uh, it's exciting. I know there's other mission ideas and challenges, things that feel like they're stretching thin, and you're looking for wisdom, you're looking for God to guide you. Trying to figure out what's the wisest way forward, what's the best way forward. Sometimes it just feels like there are so many opportunities. Which one do you take? You know, where do you go? And how do, how do you do this wisely and with discernment? So please know we're praying for you, uh, uh, because none of us is infallible. None of us, none of us gets it all right. We need each other's input and insight. And above all, we need the Spirit's help and the Spirit's grace. So, what I want to do before I preach is two things. First of all, uh, I want to deliver a gift uh, from the Sovereign Grace Northeast Regional Assembly of Elders. Last fall, uh, we voted to uh, give to the church here a $4,000 gift to help with the Mario and Jen residency this summer, and so I want to deliver that this morning to you, uh, just uh, It's a joy, a joy to be able to do this, Uh, and it's just one expression of uh, partnership and brotherhood and fellowship and being in the mission together uh, for the glory of Christ. Uh, The other thing I want to do is pray. I want to pray for uh, you. I want to pray for your leadership. I want to pray for Mario and Jen and whatever God has before you. So let's just bow, bow our hearts now. Our Father in heaven, we are amazed at your goodness. Um, We are astonished, O Lord, that you use us to accomplish your purposes in this world. Father, we know that you could send out a booming voice from heaven to every corner of this planet and reach everybody in a second of time. But that's not how you've chosen to do it. You've chosen to draw us to yourself. Plant within our hearts a passion for Jesus and the gospel. And a love for the lost. And then give us a voice. It often feels like a weak voice. And a frail voice. And a stammering voice. But you have given each of us a voice. With which we are to share. We are to become ambassadors of reconciliation. We are to become ministers. And men and women who serve. Serve others through the gospel. Father you could have done this without us. But you have chosen to include us. So that we are co-workers with you. In the mission. What a privilege. Father, what a privilege to do it together as brothers, as sisters in a local church, in a family of churches. Uh, Father, we we recognize our need. We need so much wisdom. We need so much grace. We need so much humility. We need to be so attentive to the wisdom that you give to others. We need grace to hear and grace to process and, and grace to move forward and to do all of this, Lord, in great faith. And at the same time, with deep, humble wisdom. So Lord, I pray for all this, for this dear church. Lord, may it be uh, that this church will experience even more of your favor. Smile upon these people, O Lord, for their dedication, their devotion to you. Uh, And Father, bless, bless every endeavor, every idea, every conversation, every decision for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you. All right. And will you turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. going to read beginning in verse 7 down through verse 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, O Lord, please let the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I've often thought about the fact that my life has been one of great privilege and blessing. If I were to if I were to identify one of the top two or three verses in Scripture that has become something of a life verse or a compelling, driving aspect of my life, one of them would be, everyone to whom much was given, of him shall much be required. It may seem like a strange life verse, but I'm here to tell you that I have been given Much. I had I had parents who were fully committed, believing parents. Fifty plus years of vocational missionary and pastoral work. I was arrested from my life of unbelief in my mid-teens. As I was running as fast as I could away from God, God put the brakes on me and drew me back to himself. I was married. I was a father. I was a pastor by the age of 23. I never had a bad pastor in my whole life, having always sat under or worked with fine gospel men. I was taught God-centered, God-filled, God-saturated, God-drenched theology from the cradle. I had decent schooling, better mentors and teachers, a library of thousands of books I I have a dear wife who I've known and loved since childhood, just about childhood. A team of elders around me wherever I have been. Now a family of churches that rescued me from running out of ministry steam about 10 or 15 years ago. Taught me how to do ministry better and with more grace. I have ongoing relationships that strengthen and sustain me. I have a new church home that is Filled with blessing and opportunity. We're seeing people saved. We're seeing racial walls torn down. We're seeing marriages put back together. It is grace upon grace. And while I've never experienced anything like the amazing supernatural experience that Paul describes earlier in this chapter. Where he was lifted up to the heavens and and saw the things of eternity, while I've never had an experience like that, I have had enough experience of the prophetic and of the miraculous to know that these things are real. So there has been all of this that I have received, but to keep me from being conceited. Those words sound familiar? Just read them. To keep me from being conceited. To keep me from being self-reliant. To keep me from being self-sufficient. To keep me from haughtiness and pride. There is an entirely different other side of the coin of my life. There has been many weaknesses. There have been many afflictions. Some of you know about some of these. In fact, I think three or four years ago, I preached a message where I highlighted some of those. But just to review a bit for those that may not know, I have had a constant, everyday, all-day-long headache for the last 27 and a half years. I live in constant pain. Back ten or so years Ago, One of our sons, Joel, nearly died of cancer at a time when both of my parents were dying of cancer. Four years ago, the loss of a pastoral role in the church that I had pastored for more than 20 years happened. And in that moment, we stepped out into a world of unknowns. We had no idea where we were going or what was coming next. We have children. Who have not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ. We have a grown child who for more than 15 years has battled, intensely battled mental illness. Whose, whose life has unraveled in many ways. Who bounces from hospital into trouble and back again. To the everyday wrenching and breaking of galens in my heart. Everyday sorrow. Everyday sadness, an everyday cloud. The new church we started just a few months ago has experienced sadness upon sadness. In the past eight months since Risen Hope began, as our family was taking shape, the enemy called death has visited our family seven times. Seven men have died in eight months, four of them in the church, three of them tightly connected to the church, leaving behind five new widows, 55 years old and younger, and leaving behind 10 children who are under 20. Add to those, another woman in her mid-30s, new to our church, who just lost her husband two years ago. A recently abandoned wife. And I can tell you that we are having sorrow upon sorrow. I can, I can tell you that there is a, a feeling, a sensation of sadness. So deep, so penetrating in the soul. That it's inescapable. I'm not even talking about how I feel, we feel when we watch the news, when we look at our culture and our society, but when I think about the churches that I help to care for, when I think about individual people and their afflictions, we are all a mass of weakness and frailty and sorrow and need. We are powerless, we are helpless in ourselves. But I am here to tell you this morning that grace sustained weakness, grace sustained weakness edifies others and magnifies God. That's, that's my point this morning from this text. Grace sustained weakness edifies others and magnifies God. As we seek to do ministry, whether it's pastoral, whether it's children's ministry, whether it's reaching your neighbor for Christ, whatever the kind of ministry it may be, grace sustained weakness, you will find, edifies others and it magnifies God. And as a result, it is something ironic and bizarre as it might sound, something we ought to celebrate. And boast in grace sustained weakness edifies others and magnifies God. Let me give you the background to this text here. You might not be fully aware, but Paul the apostle and his ministry have been under attack. The Corinthians had experienced an invasion of some false teachers and some enemies of Paul. And they had come in and accused him of, of all kinds of things. And Paul is addressing that situation, and in a rare move, but a necessary move, he begins to defend himself. He begins to defend his ministry. And so, as you read, especially through chapters 10 through 12 of 2 Corinthians, Paul defends his ministry, certainly by including reminders to them of his work of his, the fruit of his labors, the spiritual experiences he had, his calling by Christ, and more. And then there's that reference I I mentioned earlier in verse 1 and following where Paul had this incredible vision and these revelations from the Lord. He caught up to the third heaven and just saw things that were too wonderful to even be put into words. So Paul gives these defenses of his ministry But what is interesting about Paul's defense is not that he focuses on the strengths and the abilities and the revelations, but the very opposite. He defends his ministry. His primary defense is in his ministry is an appeal to his weakness. He says, in effect, God is at work in my life and through my life In your lives. And here's the proof. I am so weak. That the only way God could. Anything positive could ever happen in your life. Or anyone else's life. Is if God was functioning through my weakness. I am so needy. I am so helpless. I am so powerless. That God. Is obviously the one who is doing the work. God, look at, well, just look at it. Look at chapter 11 and verse 21. Just go back there. To my shame, he says, I must say we were too weak for that, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like the madman. But how? You know, how is he a better one? Listen to what he says. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at the sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness... Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, who is weak and I am not weak, who is made to fall and I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is Blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Just notice that last part of this. Here is this man who is clearly a man, who is clearly tough. Strong. He, he endured all of these things in a certain way. Physically, the Lord just had to infuse his body with strength. But here he is. He's, he's trapped in Damascus. He needs to get out. And then it's not like, you know, it's not like the Great Escape, if you've ever seen that old movie where, you know, they dug this long tunnel and it's just, whoa, a real manly way to escape. No, he's let out in a basket. Here, Paul, climb in. You can just see Paul just kind of crunched up in this big old basket, let down over the wall of the city. That, it's just a picture of weakness. It's the picture of vulnerabilities. Probably, Please don't let go of the rope. You know, you know, it's like, you know, here's a man vulnerable. Here's a man weak. And yet he boasts in his weakness. And then, in chapter 12, as I've said, he describes a remarkable supernatural experience and then he comes back to it and says, I bear in my person such weakness that God's strength is clearly on display. Brothers and sisters, there there are five lessons I want us to learn from the text. Five lessons. Lesson number one. Suffering is sad, so it's okay to grieve. Suffering is sad, so it's okay to grieve. I wonder, my friends, do do you have room in your faith, in your theology, for sad faith? Do you have room? Many Christians don't. Do you have room for grieving hope? Do you you have room for lamenting joy? The language of this text is sorrow language. It's sadness language. By definition, the things that Paul mentions in verses 9 and 10 are emotionally hard. They are sad. He mentions weakness. Well, what's weakness? Weakness is when you feel frail. You feel impaired and depleted. He mentions insults. Well, it's not an insult unless it's insulting. Unless it does some kind of wound to your spirit or to your heart. He mentions hardships. It's not a hardship unless it's hard. The Greek word that Paul uses speaks of that which constrains and stresses and and inhibits. He speaks of calamity, Friends, it's not a calamity unless it's calamitous, unless it really is a severe trial that is squeezing the emotions and pressing in on the heart. He mentions persecution. It's not persecution unless it actually persecutes, that is, harasses and hurts and harms. He says that he pleads, verse 3, he pleaded three times for relief. You don't plead unless you are longing to be released. You don't plead unless you're earnest. Paul did not wear a smiley face. Paul did not live his life as the spiritual equivalent of John Wayne or Jason Bourne. He was a man who felt sorrow and sadness. He says in chapter 4, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. That's the language of sorrow. In chapter 6, he says, He was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful. Do you have a category for that? I mean a real Big category for that. Sad faith. Paul was a weeping man. There are there's a dozen times in the New Testament that we read about Paul crying. I serve the Lord, he says in Acts 20, I serve the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials. Acts 20 he says, I admonished people with tears. Second Corinthians 2, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears. Philippians 3 says, for many of you, many of whom I have told you often and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 2 Corinthians 12, a little bit later, Paul is ready to mourn, he says, over those who have sinned and not yet repented. In Romans 9, he says, I have unceasing anguish in my heart. This was a weeping man. You've heard of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. This is Paul, the weeping apostle. And both Jeremiah and Paul were like Jesus, who is the weeping Savior. Man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of Man who came. At times, Jesus' heart just throbbed with pity. He was moved with compassion. He was given at times to tears and sighs. Hebrews 5 says, That during the days of His flesh, He offered up prayer and supplication with loud cries and many tears. Loud cries and many tears. Most likely that's referring to Jesus in Gethsemane to His hour of deepest trial. But isn't it interesting and perhaps mysterious that in His hours of triumph, He wept as well. John chapter 11. His friend Lazarus has died. Jesus knows what he's going to do. He's coming onto the scene in Bethany. Ready to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows what he's going to do. But when he sees the grief. When he sees the misery. When he thinks and considers on the fact. That all of this grief and all of this misery. Are the result of sin. And the result of Satan. His heart is greatly troubled. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He knew what He was going to do. He knew He was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet He paused to allow the lamentable sorrow, the dreadful outrage of this thing called death to affect Him. And He just cried. He just cried. Too often we Christians don't do that. We we jump too quickly to the remedy. We jump too quickly to, well, resurrection's gonna happen. Jesus knew that. He was about to do it. He knew that. He said, right now is not a time for hope in that sense, or focus on the promise in that sense. We need to we we grieve, but not as those without hope, but but this is grieving. You know, I sat, with, I sat with a woman this past week who recently lost her husband and she started to weep and she said, I'm sorry, I'm crying. I said, what are you sorry you're crying for? I didn't say it quite like that. <laughs> um, why are you sorry? You don't need to be sorry. You have reason to cry. You have reason to cry. Quiz. Who made tear ducks? Why use them use them Tears are a gift crying or comfort starts with crying I'm here to tell you I believe the church today has nowhere near a big enough category for lament and grief We need to expand the category And we need to include lament and grief in our churches and in our worship and in our fellowship. Back when I was in Jersey, we used to sing through the psalms. And uh, it wasn't very good poetry or anything like that, but I used to take old tunes and put the psalms to those tunes. And we sang through all 150 psalms, including all the laments, which include about a third of the psalms. Because it's good for us to lament. Your life may be happy, happy right now. It won't always be. But I'm here to tell you that there are others in this room for whom life is a daily experience of sadness and sorrow. And they need the solidarity of brothers and sisters in the Lord. Who are willing to sing laments with them. Even as they weep. Oh, we need more lament. Suffering is sad. And so it's okay to grieve. Secondly, suffering is divinely planned, though often satanically provoked. Suffering is divinely planned, though often satanically provoked. We see this in verse 7. So, Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now I can assure you, Satan did not send this messenger to harass him, to keep him from becoming conceited. That's not usually on Satan's agenda. His agenda is the opposite of that. To make us proud, and arrogant, and self-sufficient. What this means is that God planned, God permitted these sufferings to humble Paul, as we're going to see. But Satan provoked the sufferings. Now here we get into mystery, I understand. Here we, here we get into things that I, I don't fully, not even nearly comprehend. But I, I have come to believe that in many, if not most, if not all the experiences of life, there are at least, there are two hands at work. With two opposite agendas in play. Now they are not equal hands. There is one hand. That can squash. The fiend of hell. With one. But there are two hands at work. Like Joseph said. What you meant for evil. God meant for good. Job's sufferings were Satan's doing, doing, but according to God's plan and God's permission. Satan did the evil, provoked the suffering, but he and the sufferings were so governed and so controlled and so overruled by God that they accomplished good in Job and to this day in our lives. That's how things work here. We believe in a sovereign God who works all things after the counsel of His own will. And God's plan includes His permitting of sad things and or His permitting of sad things that He does not enjoy and even bad things that He does not condone to accomplish wonderful things That we cannot imagine. God's plan includes. His permitting of sad things. He does not enjoy. Think of the cross. And bad things. He does not condone. Think of the cross. To accomplish wonderful things. We cannot imagine. Think of the cross. God overrules. That our sufferings are satanically provoked should place us on guard because that means there will be temptations that come with the sufferings. But that our sufferings are divinely permitted and planned should make us anticipate with hope the good that God is about to do through the sufferings. Third, suffering turns haughtiness into humility And dependence into desperation. Suffering turns haughtiness into humility. And dependence into desperation. Verse 7 again. To keep me from becoming conceited. There's something about having suffering. There's something about going through the valley. There is something about having a 27 year long headache. That keeps you from haughtiness. Now I I got haughtiness in other ways. Believe me. But I thank God for the humbling effect of constant pain. It keeps me from being self-sufficient. It keeps me from being self-reliant. It keeps me from getting up in the morning and not praying. I need you, Jesus. I can't. You can. I need you. And and it's not just that it humbles. It moves us from dependence to desperation. If you just go back real quick to chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we it, that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. No, notice what Paul says here. We, we despaired of life itself. He said, we, we were... Absolutely out of resources, humanly speaking. There was no hope for us here below. We we had no escape. There was no way of getting out of this. But that was not so that we would go into despair, but into desperation. So that we would rely on God. Do you know what it's like to be desperate for God? Do you, do you know what it's like in your experience in your life to be at a point where you look at something and you say, I can't do anything about this. I can't fix it. I can't correct it. I can't say anything. I can't do anything. I can't decide anything. There's nothing I can do except pray. It's a wonderful place to be here. One man calls it the mercy of desperation sometimes you get so desperate that you don't even know how to pray sometimes you get so desperate and you pray so often that you get tired of praying i know what it's like certain afflictions and trials in my life where i don't even feel like praying anymore you been there i'm tired of the words coming out of my mouth Tired of the desperation. I just keep saying, Oh God, help. God, do what I can't do. Come, rescue. Sometimes it doesn't even go that far. Just, Oh God. Help! You been there? If you haven't been there, that which will take you there is weakness and affliction and trial. See, I don't want to go there. Oh, but you do. It's the best place to be. For when you are weak, then you are strong. For when you are desperate for God, God draws near. Who do I have in heaven but you, O oh Lord? And who on earth beside you? That's desperation. Lord, if I don't have you, I've got nothing. i got nothing. Friends, that's the truth whether we realize it or not. If we don't have him, we've got nothing. The problem with many of us is that we have so much other stuff, or we think we do, that we have lost sight of the fact that he and he alone is enough. And He is our sufficiency. He is our adequacy. He is our contentment. Contentment is not being satisfied with what you have. Contentment is being satisfied in God even if you have nothing. And you don't get there until you have nothing. Until you have less and less. Paul says, Suffering is the path to humility and desperation. Next, and I have to hurry. I don't know what time I'm supposed to be done. But I'm not even going to look in CB's direction at this point. (laughs) Suffering forth is the path to power. Suffering is the path to power. Verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power, my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. There is a direct connection between the experience of weakness and suffering and sorrow. And an experience of the power of Christ. Suffering. Is the path to strength. Jesus says my power is made perfect in weakness. What he does not mean there is that somehow or other his power is ever imperfect. What he's talking about here is that our experience of his power is made perfect in weakness. His power is perfect. He is the omnipotent one. The problem is is that so long as we are strong, we don't sense, we don't feel the effect, we don't have perfected within us, matured within us, developed within us an awareness of the power of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. Christ's grace and His power come to us with afflictions. It is as we are afflicted, grace comes. It is as we are weakened and know our weakness, power comes with the knowledge. This, this means, brothers and sisters, that suffering means more than a need for grace. It is a means of grace. Your suffering doesn't just mean you need grace. No, your suffering means God's about to pour grace into you. God is going to give you more and more and more grace. I heard somebody say recently, God will not protect us from that which will perfect us. God will not protect us from that which will perfect us. God is not going to preserve my life from suffering. If, in fact, suffering is going to lead me to a place of greater grace, greater knowledge, greater joy, greater confidence in his strength. It is better to be sick and strong than to be well and weak. Suffering leads to strength. And, folks, it's not, it's not just that there are, you know, there's, how would I put it, five pounds of suffering and five pounds of grace given to kind of match the suffering. So at the end of the day, okay, it kind of evened out and we're, we were, or we are where we were yesterday. No, it's five pounds of suffering, five pounds of grace somehow work together to produce 15, 20 pounds of grace. The two together multiply the grace in us. So that at the end of the day, you are actually stronger in the grace of God than you were the day before. This is, tribulation produces patience and endurance and character and hope. What, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying tribulation and trial grow us. They they make us stronger. They make us better. They fill us with greater and greater hope. I love being old because being old, I now can look back on a lifetime of God's faithfulness. I have seen God fulfill His promises over and over again through all kinds of trial Tribulation has produced hope. A God who has been so faithful is not going to stop now. That's who He is. I, I am stronger than I ever would have been if I had never suffered. That's why Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will boast. I will glory in my weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Fifth, finally, our suffering, our grace sustained suffering affects those whose lives we are trying to touch. Our suffering, our grace sustained suffering affects those whose lives we are trying to touch. It does that first of all, suffering in this way, that suffering shapes our ministry to others. Ministry, folks, is suffering. Servanthood, witness, evangelism. Caring for the poor. Reaching the lost. Caring, period. Costs. Caring costs. So suffering actually is ministry. Ministry is suffering. Many joys. Many delights. But ministry by definition, service by definition, involves cost and sacrifice and hardship. So a Christian then who is committed to a life of caring, a Christian who is committed to a life of service, is committing himself or herself to a life of sorrow. It's, it's kind of like having children. Only you don't know this very well at the start. But as soon as you decide to have a child. You have decided whether you realized it or not. That you were adding a certain measure of sorrow to your life. Unless you have the perfect child. And you were deciding in that moment. That your happiness, your joy, would never be fully complete again until the joy of your child is complete again. You ever think about it? We have six children. Love them all. Love them all. Love them all. But Galen and I will never be fully happy until they're fully happy. In becoming their dad and their mom, we committed ourselves to a life of at least partial sorrow. Because none of our kids is perfect. All of them experiences sorrow. All of them, or some of them will wander. Some of them will suffer. Some of them will die. Some some of them will rebel. There's a world of sorrow that they're going to experience. And every time they experience it, we parents do too, don't we? Being a dad, being a mom, is committing to sorrow. It's just the way it is. Now, again, I'm talking about the sorrow part. There's all kinds of joy part on the other side of it. Don't don't get me wrong. I love kids. Got ten grandkids, so, you know, I'm into it. But every one of those children and every one of those grandchildren... When they stumble, when they fall, when they falter, when they sorrow, so will we. If you care for other people, you will weep. Read years ago about a, a pediatric oncologist, doctor for children with cancer, who took his own life, jumped from a high-rise office window, left a note that said simply. It hurts too much to care, and it hurts too much not to care. As Christians, we are those who have been called to care. To care. Sorrow, grace sustained sufferings have a defining part in our life, our ministry. They also bless and enhance our ministry. And I got to try to finish this up quick. Let me let me show you that quickly. Let me first of all when when we suffer and experience the sustaining grace of God in our lives, one of the effects of that on others is that they can see that we really do believe what we say we believe. When they see us suffering and still maintaining our faith, still maintaining our hope, still maintaining grace, that displays that we are authentic in our faith. I remember reading years ago a book by John Piper in which he describes suffering as a means to the end of furthering the gospel, and he talks about an evangelist in India who walked across the roads of India to various villages, hundreds and hundreds of miles, preaching the gospel. Simple man, not an educated man, but he loved Jesus with all his heart, was ready to lay his life down for the gospel, came to this one particular village where the gospel had never been preached there before. It was late in the day or he... It was late in the day, he was very tired, but he he went ahead into the village, tried to preach, lifted up his voice. He got shouted down and laughed out of town, derided. They drove him out of the city, and he was so tired that he just fell down by a tree, fell asleep, exhausted. And a few hours later, he suddenly woke up, and almost the whole town was standing around him. And they said to him, we came out to see what kind of man you were. And when we saw your blistered feet, we knew you were a holy man. We want you to tell us why you got blistered feet to come talk to us. And he gave them the gospel and by one account, the whole village believed. Brothers and sisters, suffering. Blistered feet and broken hearts. Suffering in which we are sustained by the grace of God moves people. It affects them. It proves to them that we believe what we say we believe. And it affects their hearing, their attention. Seems like I almost told you the story once about uh, Doctor David Jeremiah. Did I, did I tell you that story? When he had cancer years ago. The radio preacher had cancer, uh, well, it must be twenty years ago now, and and went off the air uh, when he had the cancer. And months later, came back on the air, and and he started to get letters from listeners uh, after uh, the radio program had renewed. And the letters were saying things like this: uh, Doctor Jeremiah. We just want you to know that your preaching, since your cancer, your preaching just seems to be much more effective and powerful and sensitive. The only only thing was, folks, that the, the messages that were being played on the radio were recordings of messages from before his cancer. What had changed? Not him, but their perception of him. Their sense that he was a man who'd gone through suffering and come through it on the other side. They listened with more attention. If you want to affect people, don't run from your sufferings. Embrace them. Embrace them. Receive them as an act of God in your life for His glory. And understand that as grace sustains suffering goes on in your life. People will pay more attention to what you have to say. And with this I do close. As they witness God's grace in your life. They will be comforted to face the sufferings of their life. Paul says this in chapter 1 we have been comforted with a comfort from God that we may comfort others with that same comfort it's a a very humbling thing but it's the truth some of you have heard me say this before I think that if you were to measure the effect of different parts of my ministry in the last 15 or 20 years I think it's accurate to say that the most effective part of my ministry is my headache. That my headache and the sustaining grace of God in my life through pain for 27 years has done more good to produce hope and comfort in others than anything I've ever preached. That's humbling. So, Tim, what's powerful about your ministry? Pain. <laughs> you know, you know. Headache. But I'll tell you what. If that is true, then I'm here to tell you, most gladly will I boast of my weakness. Most gladly. Because the day of pain-free existence is coming. The day, the day when it's lifted, is coming. And the present momentary light afflictions, Paul says in chapter 4, are working for us an eternal weight of glory. So friends, if we were to walk... uh, work our way through this room this morning and listen to every story, we would hear of so much sorrow. So much grief. And I hope that the tear ducts would just open and it would just flow rivers of tears. For it's a world of sadness. But then through the tears, even as they're still in our eyes, flowing down our cheeks, That there would be this awareness. God is enough. God is enough. God is enough. Lord, give me grace. Sustain me in my weakness. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. And when I am sustained by your weakness, you get glory. Others get encouraged and strengthened. And that's enough. That's enough. Oh Lord, give us Give us this faith, O oh Lord. For oh Lord, we, we do not want to be those who live in denial. We don't want to be those who make believe. We want to live in the real world and cry real tears. But we want to weep in hope. We want to lament with joy. We want to be sorrowful yet Always rejoicing. We embrace weakness. So that we can be strong. Oh Lord to your glory. To the honor of Jesus. We pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. It was so rich, wasn't it, church? And I think think there's a great connection. Tim mentioned it. The depth that we're experiencing of wisdom from above that's coming is coming through a broken man, a man who has just been much, much afflicted. And we're getting vintage wisdom from the Lord. And Tim, thank you for this word. It was so rich and, and meaningful. And uh, Christ Community, uh, the one thing I wrote down in my notes in relation to—I I was so moved by that story of that that Indian evangelist, weren't you, of traveling hundreds of miles with bare feet and getting blistered feet for the gospel? And I, I just thought to myself, may it may it be said of us as a local church that we we love Jesus so much and we believe in Him so strongly that Christ Community Church is. The church with blistered feet, if you will. That, that that would be a spirit that marks us. Ministry that is God's power through weakness. And I just want to thank you, church, for your love for Christ and close with this thought from 2 Corinthians 12, the passage Tim just preached. Hear the risen Christ say to you all in parting. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Have a great day.